Some people say that I threw my brain away That I'm a logical and don't have much to say Some people say that it's foolish to believe In what we cannot say Some what is saved Thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vella, and on this episode, I'm going to do part one of a two-part response to one of the questions of the week done by William Lane Craig dealing with Molinism and Reformed Theology. If you enjoyed this episode or any of the content on this show, please consider becoming a sponsor and support our efforts. You can do so through our Podbean or our Patreon pages. If you cannot or just don't want to financially support the show but would still love us nonetheless, why not head over onto iTunes and give us a review? The more five stars that we receive, the better that the show is positioned in the search function. So it really helps us out. Also, if you need some new content to listen to and you're running out of podcasts like I sometimes do, head on over to the Christus Victor Network on iTunes or by visiting www.christusvictornetwork.com to check out some other great Christian podcasts all done to the glory of God. Now with all that, on with the show. that I'm no fan of Molinism. As I will argue primarily in part two, I actually think that Molinism is a heterodox doctrine that logically entails the two twin heresies of semi-Pelagianism and open theism. I'm often troubled by how often Christian apologists who glom on to Molinism because they think it's some kind of great response to the problem of evil or the problem of suffering or something like that. I've attempted to show in my previous episode on Calvinism as an apologetic why that's just not the case and why the Reformed system of Calvinism is a better response to those objections to Christianity and why Molinism and responses like it are often just metaphysical and epistemological assumptions that then get used to put back on the biblical text. When this happens, eisegesis abounds. That kind of top-down hermeneutic seems wildly problematic to me. We should not derive our theology from some vague metaphysics, but rather from careful exegetical handling of the texts of Scripture. In a recent post on Facebook, in the Facebook group, I made statements like this um, about my concerns about Molinism. And in response, I was given a link to Q&A number 157 on the Reasonable Faith website. I'll put the link in the show notes. Now, I'm not going to read it here, and I'm going to be responding to the answer that Craig gives directly. So if you need to, please pause this episode here and go pull up the page from the show notes and read through it, or at least have it ready as I respond through Craig's statements. I'm going to assume that you've already read it when I, when I make my comments. Okay, so what are my thoughts on Craig's response to the question? 
Well, first of all, what was the question? The question was basically asking why there are Calvinists among scholarship. Why are so many great godly men who are, who are academic and, and uh, reasonable thinkers, why do they hold to what the questioner appears to think is an evil doctrine of Calvinism? Well, Craig gives his answers. Again, I'm not going to go through and read out his answers one by one. I will read uh, relevant statements. But here are my thoughts in order uh, as, he, as he comments. Firstly, Craig equivocates on the meaning of the terms used in the Westminster Confession Section 3, specifically on the term ordain. For a Reformed Calvinist, this refers to the eternal decrees of God. For a Molinist, this is God choosing to actualize one world over other possible worlds, something that will show in part two actually turns Molinism into determinism, while at the same time undermining not only their view of libertarian freedom, but also undermines the orthodox doctrine of omniscience. You'll hear that in part two. For Craig to try and make this equivocation, because he's trying to say, oh, a Molinist can agree with that statement of the Westminster Confession of Faith too, for him to make that equivocation is something that he would simply not allow from atheists or from skeptics or to any of those who object to his views. Imagine if a Reformed person attempted to take the writings of Molina and made equivocal usage of terms to import Calvinism into some of his statements. Surely Craig would cry foul and say that such a view is not what Molina meant conceptually and was thus not legitimately engaging with his writings. Here, he really should do us the same courtesy. Next, he also makes the classic equivocation between Molinism and a kind of broad middle knowledge. This is a common complaint that many have against theonomy, for example, who try and say that if someone accepts God's law, that they're accepting theos namos, that is God's law, and are therefore de facto theonomists. The problem is clearly that theonomy is a specific theological system about the application of the Old Testament civil law in exhaustive detail, including the penology, to the civil magistrates today. Molinism, too, is not simply the affirmation of middle knowledge. No Calvinist or Reformed thinker I know would ever deny that part of what is subsumed under omniscience is that God has all true knowledge, including true knowledge of counterfactuals, which is middle knowledge. I mean, we as humans have this. I know the true counterfactual that had I not eaten or been given any nourishment for the last six years, I would be dead. I don't need some convoluted position on the nature of the will to affirm limited middle knowledge to humans and complete middle knowledge to God. The problem is that that is not the only feature of Molinism. And so to reject Molinism is not to reject middle knowledge. Craig makes that mistake here, and it's always so common in my discussions with Molinists or people who are trying to deny it. They think if I did say I deny Molinism, well, what's your, your problem with middle knowledge? I don't have a problem with middle knowledge. I have a problem with other uh, metaphysical assumptions that are attached in the way that middle knowledge is used. But we'll get that again, probably part two. Next, 
<clears throat> are we stuck with either the horrors of mystery on Calvinism or the wonderful enlightenment of Molinism? This is a kind of strange, bizarre objection that Craig gives. Not only do I think that the mystery is not nearly as problematic as Craig would have us believe, but also the quote-unquote solution offered by Molinism is not only hardly a solution, but it raises other mysteries, and in doing so, not only empties sovereignty of any real meaning, but also plausibly opens the Molinists to the twin heresies, as I've said, of semi-Pelagianism and open theism. So even if we accept that Molinism resolves the tension, at what cost? In addition, even if there is a mystery in how to reconcile divine providence with human responsibility and freedom that is unique to Calvinism, so what? There are plenty of things in the scriptures that are mysteries, and intentionally so. In fact, Deuteronomy 29, 29, uh, God expressly tells us that there will be mysteries directly connected to God's sovereignty and our freedom. The question arises in 29, 24 from the nations as to why God is judging the land of Israel and his own people. Here, the point is how can God be both faithful to the covenant and to the promises given and judge and punish and nearly wipe out the people from the land to which the promises were given? Well, the answer comes, God is sovereign and the people are responsible for their sin. And that, quote, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law, end quote. God is telling Israel that they are morally responsible for their sin and that God is sovereign and faithful and it is not for them to try to work out all the intricate reasons God has for his actions. Why should we think that's changed now? Consider Paul's rebuke in Romans 9, 18 to 21, where Paul writes, quote, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? End quote. Notice that Paul is directly responding to nearly the exact objection that Craig is making here. I'm not sure about you, but I would rather not affirm the position that Paul explicitly rejects. The question in 18 is only meaningful if the interlocutor was confronted with divine sovereignty, which he was in verses 10 to 18 leading up to the question in verse 19, and is appalled by thinking that God's predestination and his sovereignty and his, his decrees and his actions throughout history in determining the outcomes of behaviors and person's salvation somehow controvert human freedom and therefore he asks how then if God determines who will reject the gospel with all with a heart and will how will such people be found at fault that is how will they be morally blameworthy they say why does he still find fault for who can resist his will that is if he is sovereign 
and he has decreed it, why are they guilty if they resist since that's part of his decree? That's the only sense that that question makes sense. This is the quote-unquote mystery that Craig is attempting to use as a tool to undermine Reformed theology. Well, what's Paul's response? Who are you to question God? <laughs> Paul, inspired by the Spirit, not only directly refutes Craig's claim uh, and his view of the relationship between sovereignty and the human will, but also explicitly responds with an appeal to the mystery that Craig says he finds so troubling. Turton, who Craig quotes, finds company with Paul. I appreciate Craig's apologetical work as much as the next apologist does, but here I'm going to have to side with Paul and the inspired text over Craig's philosophical eisegesis. Next, Craig tries to sneak in what he calls the quote-unquote neo-reformed view, which is weird and kind of a caricature in itself. And he says that one result is that God is the quote-unquote author of sin. And that's one of the problems with the view. Now here, Craig has not only failed to differentiate between the so-called neo-reformed position that he's addressing and a classical reformed view, but he's failed to give any argumentation or reason to believe his bald assertion that on any reform view, God really would be the quote-unquote author of evil. He merely agrees with the questioner. The problem is that this objection that God is the author of evil has been so thoroughly responded to, and it only really survives on blogs and from angry polemical pulpits. To have a reputable scholar like Craig parrot such an absurd objection is just strange. It's kind of troubling. The rather simple answer, based on the distinction uh, between primary and secondary causes, is almost trivial in other areas of philosophical discourse that I have a hard time imagining that Craig is wholly unaware of or unable to grasp it. In fact, the assumption that lies behind this kind of objection will be laid bare later, and as we'll see, actually causes more of a problem to the Molinist because of its logical correlation to semi-Pelagianism and open theism, and the rendering of God as utterly passive in the face of evil, and therefore either completely impotent or entirely malevolent. Craig then moves on to his five quote-unquote major difficulties with the Reformed view. One wonders if he means the Reformed view or the neo-Reformed view or something else, that he thinks Molinism solves. We're going to address these in order. I'll answer them with the, the heading that he gives and then give my thoughts. The first one he gives is that universal divine causal determinism cannot offer a coherent interpretation of the scriptures. Now, this seems like an overstatement if there ever was one. First of all, Craig nowhere defines what he means by universal divine causal determinism, nor does he give any definitions or citations for the view of any reformed thinker that he's responding to. As we know, especially when you're getting down to causal determinism, that term has quite a bit of fluidity depending on who you're talking to. This feels rather like a bait and switch where we're told that he's engaging with reformed theology but is really engaging with a kind of hyper-Calvinistic fideism. 
If he is not able to rightly understand the difference between those, then he may want to refrain from misrepresenting one or the other or both to his readers. Now, he then cites D.A. Carson's book, Divine Sovereignty and Human Responsibility, and gives the nine examples where Carson argues that the Bible presents human freedom. Examples like that people are given divine exhortations and commands to act, people are said to actually obey and believe and choose to follow God, that people sin and rebel against God and are justly condemned for it, that people are tested by God and that God pleads with sinners to repent and so forth. Craig ends the list by saying, quote, these passages rule out a deterministic understanding of divine providence, which would preclude human freedom, end quote. He then rightly says that the typical reform solution then is to opt for a compatibilistic view of the relationship between divine sovereignty and human freedom. This is rather ironic because this directly contradicts what Craig just said is the reformed view, universal divine causal determinism. Did you catch that? His first supposed quote-unquote difficulty for the reformed view is that universal divine causal determinism isn't a coherent interpretation of scripture. And then he admits that the reformed theologians agree, and that is why they adopt a different view than that known as compatibilism. That alone should directly refute this point. But wait, there's more. What is the problem with citing Carson here? Well, you would think that it's a good idea. Carson's one of the nation's premier New Testament scholars by pretty much any standard. But he's also an unapologetic Reformed Calvinist. That alone should send off red flags about Craig's use of Carson's list. Craig attempts to draw conclusions from the list that, quote, the problem is that adopting compatibilism achieves reconciliation only at the expense of denying what various scriptural texts seem clearly to affirm, genuine indeterminacy and contingency, end quote. Do you think that Carson would agree with him about his own list? Of course not. And that's not Carson's point in giving it in the list. In fact, think about the statement that Craig just made. What is it that compatibilism reconciles? Well, divine sovereignty and human freedom. That is, the divine predestining activities of God and the real contingent freedoms of humans. So how can compatibilism reconcile those while at the same time denying them? It's just absurd. In fact, toward the end of my analysis in part two of Molinism, I'll show that not only is Molinism incoherent itself, but that in order to rescue themselves from the objections that all lobby about open theism, they often adopt an unbiblical and rather ad hoc metaphysical form of compatibilism that undermines their own claim to be defending libertarian human freedom in the first place. Yes, it's that bad. We will get there. His next objection is that universal causal determinism cannot be rationally affirmed. Again, Craig has already agreed above that the dominant reform position is that of compatibilism, not universal causal determinism. His objection is that determinism is quote-unquote dizzying and self-defeating, 
Because once you realize that you're determined, then you also realize that you're determined to believe that you're determined. Well, even though this is simply inaccurate on the compatibilistic view, it's also not self-defeating. Imagine for a second that you live in a fully deterministic world such as that, where even what we believe is predetermined. Can you imagine it? Of course you can, because it's entirely logically possible. There's nothing incoherent or inconsistent or quote-unquote self-defeating about it. Craig and myself just don't happen to believe that that is what the world is actually like. But it's rather feeble as an objection against that view. And again, to be honest, anyone who's a compatibilist like myself, which is most reformed persons, will just blink blandly at the objection and say, okay, and can we talk about my actual view now? His next objection is that universal divine determinism makes God the author of sin and precludes human responsibility. Well, in for a penny, in for a pound, I guess. Despite his claim that Molinism is spared from this critique, it's still not clear why Craig is boxing with straw men and not dealing with the majority reformed view of compatibilism. But there are more problems with this than that. Here, Craig is attempting to say that if God predestines someone to do evil, that God is therefore the author or the primary cause of evil. Now, besides the question of the nature of the interaction with compatibilism and, and the way that that resolves it, Craig is here apparently protesting not to Reformed theology, but to basic biblical theology. We have explicit examples where God is said to cause or predestine people to do evil things. So would Craig say that the Bible is an error because it says that God is, the, in his view, the author of sin because he causes people to do evil things? Let's look at some examples. Genesis 5.20. Now this is where Joseph is talking to his brothers about how they sold him into slavery. And he says, as for you... You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive, end quote. Here, the same word is used for what the brothers did and what Yahweh did. They chasabd, they planned, they calculated. Their actions were premeditated to cause a certain outcome. That's what that word means, chasab. So did God just blandly foreknow what would happen, like the Molinist and the Arminian would say? No. He chasabed the actions. He planned them, calculated them, intended them to happen. So is God the author of their sin? Apparently, Craig would want us to say yes. What about who tempted David to sin in numbering his armies? We're told in 2 Samuel 24, 1, that it was the Lord who incited David. But we're told in 1 Chronicles 21, 1, that it was actually the devil who incited David. Again, the same word, sa'uth, is used for the inciting by God and the devil. That is, the same verb. They do the same action in relation to how David brought about the census. So how do we resolve it? Well, the typical resolution has always been that God can be the primary cause over secondary causes. No harm, no foul. 
I wonder how Craig would resolve it. Well, he tells us. He answers this in one of his Defenders classes, where he says, and I'm going to read this, it's a little bit longer of a quote, but I think it's important to read. He says, directly asking a student who asked this question, answer, this is what one would call a biblical difficulty. We appear to have a contradiction. My own view of this is to take a middle knowledge perspective. There is a difference if God has middle knowledge between strong actualization of a state of affairs and weak actualization of a state of affairs. God would strongly actualize a state of affairs if he brings it about through direct exercise of his causal power. For example, he parted the Red Sea. He raised Jesus from the dead. These would be examples of God strongly actualizing a state of affairs. By the way, as a side note, this is what most of us would say is, is a primary cause. Okay, going back. But weak actualization can occur by God creating a free agent in circumstances in which he knew that the agent would freely do something. Therefore, God is the one who, in a sense, ultimately brings it about, but he does it through the free agency of some created being. He knew how that person would freely act in that circumstance. I think this would be a case, for example, with Pharaoh hardening his heart, where the scriptures say that God hardened his heart, but other scriptures say Pharaoh hardened his heart. I think we can understand that by saying that God knew that Pharaoh would freely harden his heart if confronted with these ten plagues upon Egypt. Another prime example would be the suicide of King Saul. In that version that is described in both Samuel and Chronicles, Saul sees the Philistines are about to take him, and so rather than be taken by the enemy, he falls on his own sword and commits suicide. But in the passage in Chronicles, the author comments, quote, Thus the Lord slew Saul and delivered the kingdom to David, end quote. Now Saul's suicide was his own free act. He fell on the sword himself. But in the mind of the chronicler, he could see this as a means by which God brought about the deliverance of the kingdom of David. I think in exactly the same way we could say that God knew what Satan would freely do in these circumstances. He would incite David to conduct a census, and thus the sentence is brought about. So, in an ultimate sense, God is the one that is sovereign, he is in control, but he is working through free agents to weakly actualize certain states of affairs without bringing them about directly. So I think we have this kind of middle knowledge perspective. It can help understand passages like this. End quote. Well, that's a lot of word salad. And we'll see that we get to the problems of Molinism, just why that's really not all that coherent. But for what it does, what does it even mean for God to arrange something by the free acts of people without God in some sense acting? or ordering what is about to happen. How is he not in some way part of the causal chain? First order, second order, primary, secondary, whatever you want to call it. If God's foreknowledge is non-causal, that it's, it's causally a feat, it doesn't, it doesn't interact, uh, a point that Craig painstakingly makes elsewhere, then his foreknowledge of future events cannot be determinative. That means that they cannot have intentionality to them. They cannot have purposive effects on history. So what does it even mean to say that God works through free agents if God is not doing anything with only causally effete foreknowledge? It sounds pretty and interesting, but it really doesn't have any substantive content to it. 
Another really good example is eight, uh, Acts 4, 23 to 28. Now, here we have a prayer spoken to God by Peter and John after being released from the Jewish high council. Notice what they say in their prayer to God. 23 to 28. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voice together to God and said, quote, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. First, in their prayer, they address God as Sovereign Lord. That sets the tone for this prayer. They're addressing the God who is in control and in charge over everything. By the way, that is the concept of the Hebrew creation understanding, that God is the one that's in absolute control and brings everything about by its word. Now, Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and the Jews gathered together against Jesus to do what? What do they say? To do their own will? No. Quote, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So is this God's causally effete foreknowledge? No, this is the definite plan, the purpose, the, the working of God's hand in history to bring about what he predestined, whatever he praorizo, whatever God foreordained, foreestablished from before the foundations of the world. God's hand brought that about. So who's to blame? Is God the author of the evil done to Jesus? Again, according to Craig, yes, he is. Craig does not have a problem with Reformed theology. He has a problem with biblical theology. Did God just foreknow that he would adopt us as sons in Jesus? Or did he actually adopt us? Well, Ephesians 1.5 says that God praorizod, uh, that he predestined us to adoption. That's an active endeavor by God. Did God just foreknow that he would receive, that we would receive our inheritance? No, he praorizod. He, he gave it to us. He gave our inheritance in Ephesians 1.11. In fact, this, this view of Craig makes a mockery of Paul's teaching in Romans 8. 29 to 30, where Paul tells us that, quote, those whom he foreknew, he also praorizo, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, end quote. Now, if predestined is reduced to just middle knowledge, then what Craig is thinking that Paul is saying is that God foreknew all that he foreknew, which is absolutely not the point of the passage. Furthermore, this passage gives us the foundation of our assurance in Christ. Why can we be assured in our salvation? Because it's God's activity from beginning to end. If we continue in verse 30, those that he praorizod, 
those that he predestined, he also called. Those that he called, he also justified. Those that he justified, he glorified. God is the actor in each one of those, carrying us from one link to the next link to the next link to the next. But how would uh, Craig like us to read this? Well, that if God did that, he would be violating our autonomous and sovereign will and would be the author of all of our sin. Now, from here, I'm actually going to skip the next two mostly because I think I've made the point over and over that Craig is responding to a caricature of his own making that doesn't really represent the predominant Reformed view. In the final two objections, he attempts to say that universal causal determinism nullifies human agency, that is, human freedom, and that it makes reality into what he calls a farce. For the first, we simply need to look back at the last answer to understand that compatibilism, the actual prevailing reform position, has no problem with real human agency. We have free will and make free choices in line with our nature and the determining decretive act of God. It's just not the kind of absolute libertarian freedom that Molinists, Arminians, Semi-Pelagians, and Open Theists want it to be. But to say that it nullifies human agency is just, well, it's just beneath a scholar like Craig to make such a shallow error. Now, as for making reality a farce, this is really just a rehashing of his previous dizzying objection. It's that when we observe the world, we see and experience real choosing, real volition. We don't observe a toy soldier, toy robot world where we have no freedom and act as little automatons. Well, the problem here, again, is that that's just an appeal to incredulity. While I agree that the world is not like little toy robots, because remember, I'm a compatibilist and that's not my view either, that's still just not really a good objection, even against universal causal determinism, even if I held to it. Why? Well, because we can imagine a world like that. In fact, we have whole movies about it. Uh, AI, The Matrix, Chappie, She, and so forth. Every single artificial intelligence question revolves around basically that same question. Is a machine that is programmed to think like a human really free, or is it just following a set pattern of rules and algorithms? Even if the machine thinks and feels like it's free, is it really free? Most of us are gonna say no, or at least if we're gonna say yes, it's gonna be a hugely qualified one, much more in line with compatibilism than libertarian freedom. Something like it can choose within the confines of its programming. Now, why would appeal to our subjective experience of freedom be anything different than just a blatant attempt to beg the question then of libertarian human freedom? Now, we'll pick up here next time, where I'll move into a full critique of Molinism above and beyond the rather uh, abysmal response that Craig gave to Calvinism in defense of his Molinism. And to be fair, again, I'm a fan of Craig. I really enjoy his podcasts and his books, and I think he's one of the best Christian debaters out there, out there today. I really appreciate his work. 
part of my scorn is precisely because I appreciate him. It's partly because that this response of his was so bad and so misrepresentative that it's almost irresponsible and it's really beneath his caliber as a scholar. So don't go sending me hate mail saying that, you know, I've attacked Craig and I don't understand his work or anything like that. Um, You know, I'm a big fan. I've listened to most of what he does and I've read most of what he's put out. Um, So try to keep the hate mail to a minimum, at least no more than, than I normally get. So thank you again for joining me. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, feel free to visit the blog at freethinkerpodcast.blogspot.com, email me at freethinkerpodcast at gmail.com, or visit the Freethinker Podcast page on Facebook. Join me again next time as I continue my critique of Molinism. Good night 